The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following presentation is titled, Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training, Implementing the Core Competencies of the NAATP Treatment Provider Guidebook. There are six breakout sessions. This one, QA1, titled Admissions, Admissions Process and Screening Assessment, and the panelists include Ernest Bradshaw, David Gomel, Ph.D., and Anthony Hun, Ph.D., the moderator, Nick Hayes, Ph.D. Thank you to everyone who is here and joining us for this afternoon session. Um, this is the Quality Assurance Breakout Session number one, Admissions. And so if you're in the wrong place, now is the time to run out, run upstairs, around the corner, find where you would like to be. Um, we're very grateful that you would join us for 90 minutes. We hope um, to give some good information, perhaps have an enthusiastic uh, discussion some point in the end, um, and wrap up. So let's jump right in. Here are lovely pictures up there. So uh, to the left-hand side there, that's me. My name is Nick Hayes. I work for Cumberland Heights Treatment Centers. Uh, right now, currently, I work in capacity as Director of Clinical Research and Outcomes, which I'm not really sure what my job is. It's just a joke. My boss is in the room right now. <laughs> my job is to manage all of our research initi initiatives uh, system-wide. Um, and I'll be your MC for today. Your speakers starting with Dr. Hoon. I'm going to read a brief bio for everyone. Dr. Hoon is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Hoon's research is focused on advancing the use of precision medicine and OUD treatment, and his lab uses diverse methodological approaches to better understand the human experience of opioid use and OUD, including neuroimaging, ecological monetary assessments, survey research, and clinical trials. Long-term goal of this research is to produce results that have clinical impact either by improving treatment outcomes directly or by evaluating and strategizing macro-level changes to improve health care for substance use and related disorders, as well as Dr. Hoon works as Senior Research Associate for Ashley Treatment Centers. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, next to him is Dr. David Gamel. Dr. Gamel is president of Rosecrans, which is a subsidiary of Rosecrans Health Network. He has 26 years of experience in the behavioral health field with both clinical and administrative experience. Dr. Comel holds a PhD in public policy. I was just, he, he I was envious. 26 I was years, envious. Like, yeah. I was in reflection of my I'm just own. just old is what you mean. No, sir. Lots of, tons of wisdom. Yeah. Much wisdom there. Game on. That's right. Game on, yeah. Dr. Gomel holds a PhD in public policy and administration with an emphasis on nonprofit administration and a master's degree in health service administration and a bachelor's degree in psychology. He serves on a number of local, state, and national behavioral health committees, nonprofit boards, and trade organizations, and is the current chair of the Illinois Association of Behavioral Health. He is also an active member of the Rockford community, volunteering with many charitable and athletic organizations. And finally, uh, Mr. Ernest Bradshaw, uh, he is the director, current director of admissions for Karen Renaissance. 
Um, Ernest joined the organization in 2002, bringing an extensive background in addiction, family systems, dual diagnosis, eating disorders, and adult programming. He has a deep knowledge of the needs of families and reference and uses a careful process of individual evaluation and family consultation to help relieve some of the anxiety and certainty individuals experience when considering admissions for treatment, which we all know is very true. Ernest oversees a team of highly trained admissions case specialists and uh, uh, as well has been in the field of addiction treatment since 1992. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here, being here with us. Well, we got, you and I are on the same page in 92, right? <laughs> um, in general, this workshop will um, cover uh, patient assessment uh, with particular emphasis on screening and criteria for admittance. We'll dive into that. Uh, we aim to do the following through these learning objectives. I believe our deck will be made available to everyone here at a later time. A different introduction slide here. Specifically, the content of this um, panel will be uh, the Quality Assurance Guideline B1. So if everyone has the app, you can actually get, uh, download the Assurance Workbook directly on your phone right now, and you can review. Um, there's, there's much commentary. This is just a portion that we pulled out. Um, and with that said... Uh, brief uh, housekeeping items here. Each of the panel uh, presenters will have about 10 to 15 minutes of specific comments, followed by a general group discussion where we'll be able to answer questions. So if you have questions, write those down, and we'll be able to answer those as a group um, at the end. So Dr. Gomel? Show me up here as I'm going. Yep. And you can slide over with that right there. All right, good. I just want to point out that uh, Ernest and I started the field the same exact year, <laughs> and I got called out. And, uh, <laughs> and I barely have more hair than Ernest, but I still have a little more hair than just Ernest has going. So. And I want to congratulate you all for showing up to a deck that had so many PhDs in the title. Um, because that's bound to be the most talkative, boring session that you're going to be at all day. So congratulations, and we've got a, a lot to uh, live up to here. So um, we're going to talk, I, each of us have a little piece that we're going to review in regards to this patient placement, and all the organizations represented here helped come up with this uh, part of the policy, and um, some work you know, some collaborative work and then some individual work as, as we went from there. Just a very brief commercial about Rosecrans Health Network and who we are. We're located, we're actually based out of Rockford, Illinois, which is on the very tip of Illinois and the Wisconsin border. Uh, we have five residential centers in Iowa, um, Illinois, uh, with about 350 beds, I think it is. We have a number of recovery homes with probably another 150 beds. 30 um, IOP clinics spread throughout Milwaukee, Madison, all through Illinois, um, Davenport, and recently um, Sioux City, Iowa, uh, through a merger with um, Jackson Recovery Center. And Dr. Annie Freed is uh, helping Kermit. Many of you know Kermit, helping Kermit uh, run that initiative. So we're, we're grateful to bring them into the fold. And then Rosecrans is unique. We have a very large community mental health uh, arm and division within our um, enterprise and can kind of double that in regards to the same housing and recovery homes and, and outpatient. And it's been a neat 
opportunity for us because there's a lot of crossover and some of that actually uh, lends credence to what uh, we're talking about here. So we're glad to be a part of it. ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, it's not 3,000, it's actually 6,000, I saw on their website this morning, physicians and associated professionals. Um, is there anyone here from ASAM that works for ASAM back in, the, back in there? So if I mess anything up, please feel free to just jump right in, okay? Um, I know at this uh, conference there's a lot of discussion going on about ASAM right now and the patient placement criteria. Um, I will not comment on that. Uh, that's the gentleman you want to see. If you have questions about that afterward, we're going we're gonna to stay focused on, on what uh, the topic is at hand. But um, generally, ASAM is an advocacy organization for substance use disorder prevention, helping access treatment, kind of a think tank. We mostly know ASAM as uh, for the patient placement criteria. Um, that many of us have used, uh, like Ernest and I, since 1992, and uh, some, some of you before that. You just don't want to say who you are right now. I recognize that. Um, the patient placement criteria is, is necessary. Um, it's necessary in some states, like the state of Illinois, where it's law. It's part of our code. You have to use ASAM uh, in making a decision. It's not, a, it's not the diagnostic tool. You're not going to get a substance use diagnosis from there. It's the tool that you use to help identify what level of care an individual needs to go into, and um, we use it to help us discern whether a person needs continued stay or discharge from there. It's very helpful with um, managed care companies. Because not all the time. Are there any managed care companies here, organizations? All right, so we can talk about them honestly here. We don't have to be. I mean, it's a constant struggle, right? It's a constant struggle where our providers say, we need this level of care and this much care, and the insurance companies say, no, you don't. This, this tool uh, gives you some objective criteria, albeit they'll say it could be subjective. It, it is, uh, there are other tools, but in my opinion, the most objective criteria that you can use in order to uh, come up with this level of, of care. So that's, that's the background of ASAM. It's divided uh, into six dimensions, and I'm just going to spend a few minutes. I recognize a number of you haven't done assessments for a long time, and uh, there are not a lot of clinicians that are at this site. I admittedly have not done an assessment for a very long time um, either, but it's still good to understand these dimensions and how they play and I'll try to put some maybe public policy spin on this as, as we go through. Uh, the first is acute intoxication. Withdrawal. Obviously, if someone is intoxicated, uh, you're not going to put them into one of your levels of care, right, uh, immediately, unless it's detox, and hopefully it's detox uh, service that you're looking for. As important or more important than this is the withdrawal potential. And the best indicator of uh, withdrawal is prior history. When the person stops using their substances, what has been their um, history or condition with uh, coming off that substance? Some of the substances that our folks are using, benzodiazepines, alcohol, there's a much higher lethality that's associated with that, right? And we need to really assess and see what's um, happening in that regard. Um, I contend that some of the substances that may not have that same level of lethality, like an opioid use disorder, um, you're coming, you're detoxing off of heroin, uh, there's a, a low likelihood of death in, in detox from, Harrison, uh, from heroin, like you would if a, a benzo, let's say. Um, 
I like to say just because you're not going to die from a detox does not, it does not mean that you don't feel like you're going to die from a detox. And anyone that's worked in the field for some time, when I, when I first started, um, what we gave an individual who was coming off of heroin was uh, modium AD and antidiarrheal and some Tylenol and, and some Gatorade. Uh, and, you know, leather belt to chew on as, as you're coming off. And it was a pretty horrible detox. And I guarantee that most felt like they were going to die from that. What it did was then preclude people from getting into treatment, right? Because it's such a bad, such an uncomfortable detox, it's going to preclude me from going forward. Our friends in the managed care organization will say, you're not going to die so you can do it on an outpatient basis. You're not going to die so you don't need residential uh, detoxification. If someone is not going to enter into recovery um, and they have uh, substance use disorder, heroin substance use disorder, then there's a good chance they're going to die from that. And so let's try to mitigate uh, uh, that response. I don't care if it seems soft or not, but I'd much rather seem soft and give someone Suboxone and help them with their withdrawal and have them get into treatment versus uh, not coming at all because it just it sucks. It's, it's difficult. So that's what we're assessing here. The second assessment is biomedical uh, conditions, complications, and you're going to look for a number of things here. You know, the ADLs, if, if someone doesn't have the ability to self-care, they may not be appropriate for whatever level of care that you're providing. You know, if it's a residential level of care and they have some ADL issues, they may, it may preclude them from that, right? Um, an individual may have a uh, need for dialysis. And you want to put them in your residential level of care, your level 3-7 uh, level of care, and they've got to leave for their dialysis for three, four hours a day. Then that's going to negate the effectiveness of treatment. And so your assessment counselor wants to work with that individual and identify what's the best level of care for, for that person. Where do they need to go? And maybe in that case with the dialysis, maybe it's an outpatient level of care. Maybe it's a partial level of care that's um, needed. And you want to tailor-make uh, the treatment experience for the individual that we're working with. Um, chronic conditions. Uh, you have a, an abstinence-based treatment program and your person has chronic pain and they're on uh, medication that can be abused. And how do you handle that? And I'm sure I'm not the only one that's sitting with our chief medical officer talking about CBD oil um, and medicinal marijuana. Um, and what are the impacts of a treatment stay? You're running an IOP group, and someone comes in and says, oh, no, I've got a prescription here to uh, use medicinal marijuana. And, and what is the impact on the culture of your group that you're referring to there? These are all things that you need to contemplate and work through, and this is what this is addressing. Um, I, one of our panelists is going to go more deeply into co-occurring disorders. It's similar questions as your acute disorders that you're looking at, um, you know, emotional, behavioral, mental health conditions that you're working with, how's that going to impact their effectiveness of treatment? At Rosecrans, we have an 80-bed residential center for youth, for, for teens, and it's substance use disorder and mental health. And uh, I ran that site 15 uh, years ago. If someone had a, a level of suicide ideation, I would not take them. Oh my gosh, they're contemplating or they have some, some level of suicidality. I, we're not going to work with them. Well, today the staff, the physicians, the nurses are so equipped to work with co-occurring disorders. There are levels of suicidality that uh, are effective. 
Ernest and Savetta. <laughs> You're good, man. You're good. I just thought I was afraid it was me. No. Um, in there. Or eating disorders, right? I mean, what is your level, what is your ability in your program to work with people with uh, disorders? I remember our physician admitted someone with early onset uh, schizophrenia, and this person had some level of psychosis and was in a traditional substance use uh, treatment program. Um, and that person did very well. They're very effective as long as they tailored it accordingly. At Rosecrans, we have the advantage of having um, community mental health and traditional mental health programming. And there are times where a person with schizophrenia, let's say, who also has substance use disorder, could live in one of our mental health housing and focus on the mental health housing and then receive outpatient substance use services, traditional uh, substance use services. That's the point of these dimensions, right? It's to, it's to, to match the need and the level of care for your person. Um, readiness for change. I told you I, I worked at the youth center and um, for a number of years, and we get about a thousand admissions a year there. And so let's say I was there five years. Of the five thousand kids, I think I met two who asked to be in treatment. Uh, the other four thousand nine hundred ninety-eight kids were forced into treatment. And I lived on that SAMHSA study that said coerced treatment is effective. Um, there are studies afterward that uh, give a little more detail. Sometimes coerced treatment is effective until the coercion leaves, and then the treatment or the outcome is not as effective. Um, but again, at Rosecrans, we're involved in a number of counties. We're in dozens of counties, and we're in the uh, judicial system of some of those counties where we run the therapeutic courts, the drug courts, we're the provider for those, and people are, are very effective. You know, it's more jail time or this treatment thing. I'll try the treatment thing, and there are sanctions if I violate. And over time, people, you know, you lead a horse to water, sometimes people start to drink, and it is an effective uh, uh, modality. But when you're working in the assessment process, and this is the uh, uh, Declemente and Prochowska, Pro, Pro, uh, 1993? Somewhere in there. Yeah, see? I was yeah, five. He was five. I was doing treatment. I was doing assessments, so it's cool. Um, and <laughs> the stages of change uh, model and where people enter here. Um, your assessment counselor should work with the individual. If someone is in a pre-contemplative state and they don't necessarily have that outside coercion, maybe putting them in inpatient treatment isn't the best opportunity at that point for them. Maybe you need a treatment plan, an early intervention to help move them to a contemplative stage or, or more uh, further along readiness stage. Sometimes you have that advantage and you have that time um, and sometimes you don't, but really what you're assessing here is exactly that. Uh, the fifth dimension, relapse, continue use, continue problem. Um, if this individual is exposed to a substance, is that individual going to be able to uh, uh, not use? That's the first thing you're talking about. If, if, if uh, they don't have a coping skill to uh, combat that trigger, if they don't have that insight um, to move through those experiences, then they're not going to get into recovery. If, again, if they're, if they're high or dead, they can't move into recovery, right? And so these are things that you want to assess um, in regards to their future use as you're identifying what your level of care is. And it doesn't mean residential every time, but it could mean some intensive or, or partial with some coaching that's associated or some check-ins. There's, there's a variety of uh, different things you can look at. Um, we had a, we have a program specifically for opioid use disorder 
we, like you all, have individuals that are addicted to opioid who um, come in and they go to treatment for 30 days and they leave and they use and they come in, you know, detox, treatment, leave. And so um, we started a program in which it's a very intensive, short-duration residential stay where you come in, you have to agree to the kind of the terms of this. Um, you come in, you detox, you begin your MAT immediately. And, you know, for full disclosure, I was an abstinence-based only. This is the only way it's going to work um, until our CMO finally said, Dave, you know, how many deaths do we have to endure until you realize this is science that we're talking about here? You know, sometimes... Uh, uh, going to meetings, reading your big book, and getting on your knees, asking God for help isn't enough. Sometimes you do need medication-assisted treatment, not in place of counseling, not in place of 12-step involvement, but uh, um, it's there. Anyways, my little, my little soapbox on, on, that, uh, on that level there. Um, and lastly is the recovery environment. You know, if there's a partner at home that's using every single day, there's a, uh, a less likelihood the person's going to get into recovery if they're going to level one outpatient service and then coming home watching their partner use. If there's a kid who's in a school system who um, uh, every day is exposed to, you know, kids smoking pot in the hallway or whatever they're doing, it's a lot more difficult for that person to get into, and that should be part of your assessment process that you're um, looking through. These are the ACM levels of care that most of us adhere to, and nowadays most uh, managed cares adhere to. A couple final points that I'd make on this. Um, because an individual has a substance use disorder moderate, okay, it doesn't mean that they need intensive outpatient. If based on your assessment and based on your, your criteria review, um, their home environment is precluding them, or they don't have transportation to get to IOP, or there's an abusive situation, or they don't understand uh, their you know, pre-contemplative, they don't understand their triggers, then maybe IOP is not the best case. I was raised uh, in, in the 90s in the, in the height of managed care where it was fail first. Try IOP. Go to the least restrictive environment. Try IOP. Let them fail first, and then we'll authorize residential services. But we all know you sometimes don't get a second bite of the apple. You know, sometimes your, your next relapse is your last use. And if an individual meets criteria for a higher level of care, uh, then that's our recommendation, right? And that's where that partnership uh, needs to happen. And the same thing holds true for continued stay criteria. Just because an individual isn't gnawing on the coffee table anymore in, in your residential program because the craving is so bad, just because they're, they're done uh, withdrawing from their substance and the symptom is gone, it doesn't mean that they're ready to move down. And uh, this criteria here can and lend credence to some of that. So I'm going to pass it on to... There we go. Thank you. All right, great. Well, I'd like to thank uh, NATAP for inviting me and Dr. Hayes. Um, and thank you guys all for coming. That's the kind of post-lunch uh, uh, malaise right now, I think. And uh, so I'm going to try not to exacerbate that, but I, I can't really make any promises. Uh, so assessment and screening of co-occurring mental health conditions is incredibly important. Um, it's really the the patient's first um, experience in a treatment facility and it sets the tone for treatment moving forward. And at the same time, it's an uh, excellent opportunity for the treatment provider to get a comprehensive understanding of, of the patient that they're working with. Um, 
There are a ton of individual differences between patients. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of individual differences uh, within the patient population that could pose a unique risk factor for relapse. Um, and so understanding um, uh, the mental health outcomes right off the bat is incredibly important. I'm, I'm often giving talks like this to groups of physicians, uh, primary care physicians, and stressing the importance of uh, screening for substance use disorders at all in a primary care setting. Um, I, uh, it's, that's gotten better. It's not great. Uh, we're not where we need to be um, as far as screening for SUDs right off the bat. Um, and I still get comments occasionally uh, from primary care physicians that they don't treat addiction. They don't, they're not trained to treat addiction. Um, and maybe they don't want their um, lobby, f you know, filled with people with substance use disorders. And I, I always have the same response. You do treat substance use, you do treat people with substance use disorders. You 100% do. It's, it's almost statistically impossible that you have a full patient load and you don't treat people with SUDs. And so I would say the same thing to addiction treatment facilities um, who might think that co-occurring disorders are out of their realm of treatment. It's almost statistically impossible that you don't treat people who have co-occurring uh, major psychiatric conditions. Um, but you don't have to... Um, well, not all facilities are going to have uh, medical staff, a psychiatrist, or a psychologist. I mean, there are different levels of care. So if it's a facility that doesn't have that, at least getting a kind of baseline understanding of the patients that you're working with and perhaps having wraparound services in the community that you can connect patients to to offer coordinated and comprehensive care um, it becomes incredibly important. So there's a difference between screening and doing an assessment. A, a screen is brief. It just gives you an indicator if a person has uh, a, a certain mental health condition, whereas an assessment would be like a DSM-5 diagnosis, and that would require a, a medical professional or a licensed clinical psychologist. <coughs> and as I mentioned, mental health conditions are often unique risk factors for, for drug relapse. Um, Generally, when in addiction treatment facilities, we're treating drug relapse as our primary treatment outcome, but it's, it's really not the only treatment outcome. It's, uh, if we're talking about putting people on a path of recovery for life, that includes substance use outcomes, but it also includes physical health, mental health, spiritual health. Um, so mental health on its own is a treatment outcome. So I'm going to go through and review a few screening assessments that might be useful um, you know, for, for, for different facilities. Um, I think um, they're, they're so brief and so easy to administer um, that it begins to make sense to do it multiple times. For example, if you're um, working in a 28-day residential facility, uh, you can screen somebody upon intake, and then you can rescreen them after two weeks at treatment midpoint and rescreen them again on their way out the door. And you might start to find patterns that people who... Um, have a persistent uh, depressive symptoms or symptoms of anxiety that do not resolve in that initial uh, residential treatment, um, that those folks are at the highest risk for relapse when they leave the facility. And so again, reaching out into your community and having coordinated, comprehensive, long-term uh, care plans is, is incredibly important. So the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, or the PHQ-9, is very easy to administer. This is self-report. Um, 
it's, it's literally nine items, hence the term PHQ-9. Um, so it's quick, it just takes a minute or two to fill out, and it's an indicator of depressive symptoms within the last two weeks. So if you were doing a diagnostic of major depressive disorder, uh, we are always looking at for two-week periods of time um, that you show persistent depressive symptoms for at least two weeks or longer. For people with substance use disorders, uh, this gets really complicated, right, because a lot of the symptoms of having an active substance use disorder start to look like the symptoms of depression, and it's hard to, to tease that apart. But regardless, I've done several research studies where we're tracking treatment outcomes and where we recorded um, symptoms of depression, and it is always associated with treatment outcomes, such that people with higher levels of depressive symptoms tend to relapse more. And it's been true across studies, and there aren't actually a, a lot of things that I've measured across studies that are true across studies. Um, but in every single study I've done, this, is, this one comes up. So it's important. It's a two-week, um, again, it's a two-week assessment, so it's something you could assess during intake. It's something you could assess at treatment midpoint and then when they are out the door. And if you're doing an outpatient or IOP, you could start to think about different checkpoints along the way where you're looking for improvements in mental health and at what point do you say this person needs extra care. Another uh, mental health condition that a lot of people with substance use disorders experience is anxiety. Um, so there's a general anxiety disorder scale. It's a seven-item scale. It's literally seven questions. Um, and you can, it assesses anxiety in the past two weeks. It's not a diagnostic. It just is an indicator. Um, but it's, um, it might indicate a clinically significant condition like generalized anxiety disorder. And you can use... Um, these scales in, in some regards to guide treatment. A lot, of, um, a lot of folks with SUDs have anxiety disorders and sleep disorders, um, and so being able to assess and reassess these disorders throughout treatment um, can actually improve the quality of care for the patient. ADHD, another big one, right? Especially for young adults, um, which we're sometimes calling emerging adults these days, whatever, whatever term you prefer to use. Um, uh, there's a, a, a lot of research that's shown that um, the presence of ADHD in adolescents is a strong predictor of substance use disorders later in life. It can also be a risk factor for relapse for folks um, who are young adults who are early in recovery. Um, the ADHD self-report scale, or the ASRS, has two parts. The first part indicates whether or not the, the person has a current ADHD the second part can target specific symptoms that, that might be something to focus on for treatment. Um, so again, this is something that can be used at assessment, um, and then it can be reused throughout, um, throughout treatment. It's also, I think it's also important to ask about a past history of ADHD. And this particular scale, um, it doesn't just apply to young adults. There are plenty of, of middle-aged and older adults who have ADHD who struggle with that. Um, and so to, to kind of start to get a handle on that early in the treatment process, um, again, is something that can improve uh, the treatment trajectory for those patients. Mood disorders are a big one, um, especially bipolar. Um, so if you're, <coughs> if you're an addiction treatment provider and you're treating somebody with bipolar disorder and you're not treating the bipolar disorder, it, I, I would say they have a very slim chance of staying in recovery. Um, if you're not set up to treat bipolar disorder, then it would be incredibly important to reach out into the community, whether it's a, a single provider, a psychiatrist, or a, um, a mental health group 
um, that can handle uh, treating the co-occurring mood disorder. If you have uh, in-house capability to do that, I think that's excellent. Um, so there's a mood disorder questionnaire. It's a screening tool um, that just indicates whether the person needs further assessment. It's not something <coughs> necessarily to be used um, to guide treatment unless you're somebody who's trained to treat bipolar disorder. Uh, very brief though, um, and again, bipolar is a major impediment to recovery. Um, so those are, those are four brief screening uh, self-report assessments that you can use um, that if you gave all four of them uh, at intake, it would take less than 10 minutes and you would at least have a, a good idea of where the patient was at when they came into treatment. Um, I hear this more and more, uh, this, the phrase, we're going to meet the patient where they're at, and I, I love that phrase. You know, it, it implies that you're taking into account um, the patient's uh, family history and their family situation, their employment situation, their readiness for change. That's a big one, right? Um, but meeting the patient where they're at also implies that you are uh, taking an assessment of their physical and mental health. Um, and so, again, these mental health outcomes are incredibly important. And there is a, uh, a brief screen that you can do yourself for your, uh, for your treatment facility. It's called the Dual Diagnosis Capability and Addiction Treatment uh, Questionnaire, or the DDCAT. Uh, I don't actually know if people refer to it as the DDCAT, but I refer to it as the DDCAT. I kind of like that. Um, so uh, this is something that you can fill out uh, yourself about your own facility. And uh, you can look at, you know, where are our strengths and, and where do we need help? And, you know, identifying um, those areas where you're not really set up to treat certain types of patients, uh, you know, you can look out into the community, find collaborators. Generally, I, I feel like the more crosstalk you have between other pre treatment providers, uh, the better treatment you're going to provide overall. Um, you know, and I realize that there's some competition among treatment providers, but really in this day and age, you. Um, you know, we have like at best like 15% of people with substance use disorders are actually in treatment. So there's no shortage of patients. Um, you know, it's, it's about giving the patient the best quality of care moving forward. Um, so developing a plan for continuing care and, um, yep, and identifying other providers who can fill the gaps. So that, that's the conclusion of my portion. I guess we go on to the next one. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, first thing I want to say probably is that I have been working in this field for probably 25 years, um, 16 years with uh, Karen uh, Renaissance and uh, now Ocean Drive in addition to that. And I'm typically accustomed to speaking to two, three, maybe four family members, you know, several staff members, and not quite a room this size. So, um, but it is my pleasure and my honor, and I believe my privilege to be here with these gentlemen in this panel and all of you. Um, I wanted to speak um, um, more so about the experience of assessing uh, patients and interesting. Well, let me step back a little bit. I do work for uh, Karen Renaissance in, in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and also Ocean Drive, smaller uh, uh, facility. We've got 124 beds um, that are dedicated towards uh, treatment at Karen Renaissance and only 14 at Ocean Drive. Um, and and uh, um, 100 of those beds are dedicated for patients. 12 are dedicated towards family members, and I'll get into that in a little bit. 
and it does have something to do with the assessment process. And 12 more are, frankly, uh, a sober dorm for patients who are currently in treatment. I believe I've had the privilege of only, um, uh, and maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but I've had the privilege of working in long-term treatment. It is my only perspective, and so I am a little biased towards um, uh, my opportunity. And probably for most of the 25 years I've been in this field, I've managed to work in private pay uh, continuum with little in, uh, impact with the insurance companies. Uh, the assessment process that we are involved in at uh, Karen Renaissance is um, uh, pretty extensive, um, and these gentlemen have laid some fantastic groundwork for both substance use uh, disorders and co-occurring disorder. Uh, I have a team of, of six case specialists um, who participate in the actual initial contact and screening with patients and with families. Uh, but in addition to that, part of our assessment process, and, and uh, not everyone has the capability of, of, of actually doing this, but it's been important to uh, the process of working in long-term treatment, also includes, uh, we have two full-time psychiatrists. Um, um, the medical director is also um, a ASAM physician, which we're most certainly are greatly appreciative. And we have another psychiatrist whose specialties are the attention disorders in child and adolescent uh, development. There's a neuropsychological department, um, but in the participation in the initial assessment, and this is during the in intake and referral process, also includes uh, clinical directors. It includes um, um, uh, head of our family programs and, and most certainly the clinical team from um, Ocean Drive. For us, that's become critical because our process includes not just assessing and evaluating what's going on with the patient as far as their substance use disorder history and all the things that you need to gather for an appropriate um, uh, admission in, in that department, but it also includes an assessment and evaluation of the family. As we all know and are completely aware of the impact on families who are involved in treatment, and, and, and at Karen, uh, most certainly, not only treating the patient, but the family becomes critically important to the process. So much so that um, uh, part of that could include having the family actually be a part of the treatment, whether it's later in the process, uh, beginning the process, or anywhere during that, that piece. Um, it seems to have impacted, and I shouldn't say seems to, right now 62% of our, our families are actually coming and joining us uh, at the facility, living and going through treatment at the same time as their families, uh, family member, their loved one. Uh, the outcome, as you know, when you including families to, to that degree, um, uh, is, has at least for us been uh, much more, uh, much higher as, as a result. The, Work that the case specialists do, um, and, and again, part of our assessment is not um, a 28-day emergent, something that you can turn around right away. So we do gather a tremendous amount of information uh, on the patient, their history, their background, um, speak to as many providers as possible um, that are uh, they have a history with. Our, frankly, our psychiatrists want that direct contact and communication with, with their folks. Um, significant others, friends, uh, sometimes family for many of our patients turns out to be um, 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 their sponsors and their attorneys, whoever is closest to the patient. But that part is 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 been extremely valuable for us uh, in an effort to make sure that we are the proper fit for the patient. And if not, uh, uh, from the very beginning, what we want families to, to understand, what we want patients to understand, and uh, the reference is how can we be the best resource for 
that patient and make sure that they get to the proper facility provider, uh, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, um, uh, strictly psychiatric. Um, and, 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 and so we've made, a, a, I believe, a superior effort at trying to provide significant reciprocal relationships, frankly, with many of you folks and many other providers in the country. Um, upon that uh, assessment process, um, it, and it may mean referring someone to another facility for a period of time, five, six weeks, at times uh, possibly even longer before they become stable enough in order to engage in our services. When you start to take a look at the uh, kind of work that becomes necessary for patients and, and, and families to do, especially when you're looking at, at, the, at the kind of outcomes um, and, and how well and quickly patients can bond into the facility. Excuse me, can I have my water? Excuse me. Uh, the assessment becomes critical uh, as to um, how quickly we can get someone bonded into the facility, um, um, build rapport with the patient and, and with the family. And, and um, um, one of the things that I believe has happened, and, and this we took a look at, is our AMA ASA rate has gone down. Um, the ability to um, work not just with the patients, uh, but also with their families. And, and in many cases, and I think we're seeing an increasing rate of assessing families, um, is to bring the families in at the same time the patient comes in. It's not an opportunity that many facilities have, and I wanted to mention it because it, it, um, we're seeing the impact of, of helping patients settle down in, 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 into, into the process, and also, helping family members who may be struggling um, with holding the line. I spoke to a mother the other day. Her son was, may still not yet be a graduate of a major university in the United States. He's 23 years old, and she told me that um, she's known her son's been in trouble um, for the, since he was age 15, and yet the family has um, allowed the patient to manipulate. He's extremely bright and athletic, um, the situation, but now it's opiates and... and um, uh, it's been confirmed by all of his peer group, and the family, of course, is in crisis. Uh, one of the struggles, of course, in part of assessing uh, for us coming in is what parts of the family, um, um, uh, how much of a parental unit they are, how do we help them. And being able to help them and, and bringing them into the clinical process uh, becomes important in helping the overall outcome of the patient, and, and always with the consideration of health of the whole family system, the health of the patient, and and everyone else that's involved. Our um, uh, case specialists here, interesting enough, in, in cases, as we all know, sometimes they admit right away. And for us, typically, it needs to go through that team, that admissions team, um, um, uh, with any response, any request for additional records or uh, collateral information, if you will, uh, prior to any quick admission. Um, but uh, sometimes the admissions do not go as well, and sometimes they take two, three, four months, five months. I've worked on cases as long as two years before someone actually uh, was involved. Part of that process was involved someone who typically is considered to be part of that initial screening and assessment in admissions, but when you consider how much actual rapport they've built with the family, the connection that they have, um, how much insight that they have, uh, this position for us has become more of an admissions and, and thus the title of case specialist because, frankly, they've been a support to the clinical team because of, of, of that experience. 
the staff, uh, frankly, has taken on um, that responsibility because they still have to look outward and all of those. But they have been critical at points of ASA, AMA, uh, struggles with the family to support the clinical team because of that connection until the team can build the rapport that they need in order to embrace all of the clinical things that, that need to take place. Uh, we have been uh, very excited about everything that NATAP has done. I was so excited last night to hear uh, about the concept of raising the floor. Um, being part of treatment and being part of treatment in South Florida has been uh, at times overwhelming. Uh, having been in Florida, it's the only place that I've worked for the last 25 years. Um, it's, it's, I won't say it's been a struggle because we've focused on providing the best care, using the best practices, uh, but of course um, we get painted with the same brush that everyone else does. And, and not that it's just happening in Florida, of course it's happening everywhere, uh, but we can best be um, um, supporters, reciprocal reference, um, leaders, if you will, uh, for everyone that um, is here, and especially at a time when this epidemic um, hopefully is beginning to be embraced by the things that, that are also going on in, in the community and some of the leaders in, in, in the country. Um, hopefully, uh, we're going to have a, a Q&A session and, and uh, that uh, you folks have a lot of questions for us. Uh, if not, I know he has a, a few that uh, he will uh, point out, but thank you very much. Let me shuffle some slides here real briefly. Thanks to the panelists. Just one more round of brief applause. Is that too much of a commercial? Thank you all for sharing. Um, it's a unique opportunity to sit in front of a few people that are sharing their experience related to admissions and patient screening and assessment. Um, hopefully we'll have and generate a really a great dialogue. I want to say a few brief things. I would be reminisced if I didn't get that opportunity because um, I believe I have one of the, I'm a, one of those speaking doctors we were laughing about earlier. Um, so, you know, Context is very important. So this, this um, in, in fact, I believe in my training would suggest that all behavior makes sense if you understand the context in which it's <coughs> developed, right? So what that means and, and why that's important and relevant, relevant for this session here is patient assessment becomes one of those critical components where we really get to meet our client or our patient for the very first time in ways that perhaps um, might be contrary to the opinion we have already generated when they walk into the door. And so having not, exp having not worked in an admissions department for 26 years, I'm only 29 years old. But having advanced training in quantitative methodology and working in the field for nearly my entire adult life and leaning on the wisdom of these gentlemen suggests that the better we understand who our patients are when they come into treatment, the more effective we can apply perhaps evidence-based practices or empirically support, supported treatments in their effective um, treatment of patients over time. Not only that, but being the nerd that I am, it's interesting that NAATP decided to partner the B1 and B2 guidelines together. The B1 guideline being the focus of this session here today, which I hope we get some good questions about, perhaps some resentments if you're in the mood. That's fine, too. But admissions, as well as patient assessment and screening through time. And so for those of you that were in Dr. Kelly's um, keynote presentation this morning, he talked a lot about what that means. Um, in terms of feedback-informed treatment or measurement-based care or digital phenotyping. These are all very similar concepts. Um, how do we get to know who our patients are well 
And then, so basically sort of taking pictures of where they're at, not literally, HIPAA, CFR 42, that would not be a good thing, right? And then taking other clinical pictures of where they're going to be able to map trajectory, not only while a patient is in treatment, but after they leave. That becomes critically important for three reasons, and then I'll shut up and step out of the way. The first reason is to equip ourselves and understanding who they are. Second reason is to become better at treatment, identifying what groups are doing best with certain patient populations or what programs or maybe perhaps what clinicians. And the third, just from a research and data outcomes perspective, is to protect us against dangerous legislation or litigation, right? That's why this is important. This is my favorite quality assurance guideline. If you haven't had the opportunity to read the entire guidebook, tonight's the night. You know, Game of Thrones is not on. <laughs> Come find me. I'll drink espresso with you, and it'll be a great time. Um, thank you for having the opportunity for us to share. I do have some really great hard questions that I thought about for us to ask the panel. Um, but for now, let's, let's open up the discussion. And if you would, just please stand so we can see you and speak loudly. So we'll open that up. Questions, comments, resentments. Please stand, sir. Sure. Um, uh, my name is Nico Doran. Uh, my question would be how your respective organizations either handle this or how you feel about it personally, the fact that the first line of assessment typically goes through a marketer or kind of referring professional. And um, so, and then we run into the issue of if it weren't that way, then you separate the referring professional from the admissions department, and then there's not the same continuity. So I'm wondering what you think best practices um, for that challenge, you know, connecting the referent to the actual clinical assessment, how those are separate things, but they go hand in hand. Great question. Did everybody hear the question? Well, I mean, it's, it's germane because there's a lot of sleaze in our field, right? I mean, it's, it's what uh, Marvin's been talking about and this NAATP has been working on for some time is how to separate those that are looking to get rich off of people with substance use disorders from those who are trying to help people with substance use disorders move into recovery, right? And I, I know Karen uh, has a larger marketing budget than Rosecrans does, but we have a pretty healthy marketing budget ourselves. I think the the answer is of course ethics and, and guidelines and there are a number of policies that NAATP has worked through to help um, navigate that and then you, you answered your own question it's how quickly do you move someone from hey I'm calling this marketer who said call this treatment center you know uh, Gateway in Pennsylvania and and Paul's got a marketer out there and he's he's how quickly can he connect that person to your care navigating team which I think what Ernest did a really good job, by the way, uh, sharing that process and how that looks, because then that team, as I think you said, can take up to two years uh, to engage individuals. You know, and, and, and he's right on. I think one of the things that uh, we've discussed from time to time, and, and it cannot happen, it does not happen with everyone, is how much of your admissions or your marketing team has experience in admissions and understands that process and how important it is to get the patient and the, the family connected to the professionals. and. In, in that department, in, in, in our system, uh, connected to the rest of the, the admissions team. And it, it, it is a point of emphasis. 
um, for them to be able to do that. I think the feedback loop coming from admissions back to the marketers as to uh, what was the outcome, how was it handled, uh, what were the glitches. And so just like in any large agency, uh, that, that kind of collaboration is, is critical to the process. I would just add that um, any objective measurement we could have across facilities, across providers that gave us some hint, uh, you know, from a patient entering. It's really like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Did you ever have those when you were a kid? You know, that, this is what addiction treatment is in this country. It's choose-your-own-adventure. There's no point of first contact, and there's no, if I'm a patient seeking treatment, you know, besides like going on Google and looking at the comments underneath the facility, I have no way to gauge kind of who's good and who's, you know, maybe going to take advantage. Um, so I would just add on to that, that really until we start treating this like we do other medical fields, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of the same problems. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you all for the panel today. Uh, as an intervention, I'm seeing more and more occurrences of things like marijuana-induced psychosis Yeah, so I have the perfect cop-out to that. I'm not a clinician, <laughs> so, so I don't do this in my daily life. Um, for the purpose of research, um, you know, we do very in-depth uh, uh, psychosocial assessments, um, depending on kind of the level of trial I'm working on. Um, generally, we're able to, I mean, we make a decision at some point, but it's really, um, I think, kind of to your point, it's about tracking that person over time, and does it persist, does it change? Um, it starts to give you a clue of whether it's really tied to drug use or if it's something that's maybe been there before and is going to continue to be a problem in recovery. It's my non-medical advice. <laughs> well, let me share, um, again, some of the practices that we used. And I spoke to the fact that we have two full-time psychiatrists. Um, a decision we made some time ago was that all patients coming in our door um, whether it's indicated during the process or not, will be um, a, given a psychiatric assessment. If there is no need for any ongoing care, and I thought I heard somebody mention earlier, uh, somewhere in the, in the interim during that process, they're going to be assessed, and most certainly there's always an exit interview. Uh, given the fact of who we are, um, uh, um, the therapist and the collaboration between the psychologist, the psychiatrist, um, the, the family uh, department, the clinicians, uh, most certainly if there is something that starts to pop up and it's not just coming from uh, their group and individual work with them, it could be something over, over in the residence, that information will bubble up through our process to uh, create an opportunity to assess the patient. And essentially, uh, it is treatment, it is long-term treatment, but our perception is, is that it's an ongoing assessment process and you may not see some things for quite a while during that process. But, but to have that mindset for the whole team is, is critical to us. Yeah, I, I mean, reassessment, right? Early onset psychosis, is this can avoid uh, uh, induced psychosis, is this? And so you just continue to reassess um, and try to treat accordingly. question or are you doing like a 
Is that like a thing right there? I don't know what that was. Yeah, so the gentleman asked a question about um, the assessments that I showed for different mental health conditions, if there was uh, kind of a master assessment or if, they get, if there's some kind of summary. Um, there's not. The ones that I uh, went over here are the assessments that are recommended by NATAP. Um, they represent individual mental health, like individual domains of a mental health condition. Um, they're, they're all validated, psychometrically validated. You could use another psychometrically validated assessment if, if you so chose. Um, the kind of longer, more comprehensive starts to get into like a real clinical diagnosis. Um, and so if you're in an organization that has a psychiatrist or psychologist um, employed, then that's, um, that's probably what you should do. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the patient. I know it might seem. Yeah, sorry. The question he's asking is, in in my earlier comments about the use of MAT and kind of my evolution of moving following the science. It was I was the slow one. Science was was not. And then what does that look like long term for a patient? When do you take the patient off the MAT? And uh, the answer for some may be never. Right. Um, at Rosecrans, we don't use uh, methadone. We use Vivitrol and, and Suboxone for opioid use. Um, but you may have some on methadone forever, and there is a lot of science. There's a lot of research that says that's an effective way. And I know you got some big book thumpers in here who will disagree with that, but you know, my, my doctorate tells me that you have to follow that best research. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, it's, it's individualized. Our goal ultimately would be for everyone to be abstinent, you know, completely drug-free. Um, but that may not work for some of those individuals. For some, it's just detox. Uh, for some, it's some weeks thereafter. For some, it could be some months thereafter. Um, in our own practice, if someone is looking towards that longer-term use, then we would probably refer them to um, another physician to, to do that MAT. I couldn't hear you, Paul. Are you explaining those options up front during the admission process, or is that something that goes through the course of the admission? I don't know. Go ahead. I know for us, and it is a big question, it's an ongoing question. We come from that platform of total abstinence, but we also are beginning to evolve. In, in the sense of accepting Suboxone and, and, and Vivitrol as alternatives. But I can tell you uh, uh, we have not yet come to grips with long-term maintenance on Suboxone. 
And so, um, and again, uh, one of the other pieces that, uh, you know, most certainly is a point of emphasis is full transparency. That's a discussion we want to have during the admissions process, both with the patient, their provider, referent, and also uh, with the family system. And, 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 and uh, so that they have uh, an ability to make a choice. We have been able to most certainly detox people using uh, uh, Suboxone, and, and, and I say detox, we had uh, an intensive partial, partial hospitalization level of care um, in, in, uh, in, in, in Florida, both, both agencies, so we use outside detoxes. Uh, we have made the choice as a team to bring a few people in the door, knowing that within a week or two that they will be completely titrated off. Again, this is something that both patient, family, and, and referent are aware of. And, and, and being transparent about all of who you are, what you're capable of, and what you're not, one, being honest with yourself, uh, but also to the consumer so that they can make the healthy choice. I want to circle back to the first question just very briefly and just make one comment that for those of us that might not be most, for those psychometricians that aren't in the room, like someone like Dr. Hoon here, and the experience of looking at a PHQ or a GAD, just to stay centered on admissions very briefly, we have 30 more minutes. Um, you know, th there are free open access resources like that available online, like Phoenix Toolkits or the Promise Measures. You're not restricted to the ones that maybe certain organizations feel like is but so if you're curious about those or want more help being able to distill through that information email dr hoon no i'm just kidding don't do that <laughs> but email me yeah email any one of us like that that's that's i can only speak for myself that's my passion and so in in terms of admission and patient screening and assessment over time which um, those, that's an important distinction, right? There are many very short, brief screeners and assessments that we can use that are reliable and valid to track patients over time um, that, that are, can be very, very helpful. Um, I also want to ask you guys a question about standardized assessments, but admission assessments, but we'll get there. This woman right here is very excited. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> trend for a barrier for treatment I mean you know I I'm not on the ground uh, anymore but I still get calls all the time from friends of friends and sometimes they calls you know they'll say hey your your friend we just admitted and I've never heard of that person because they just got on on the on the website and recently I got a call from uh, uh, two individuals very affluent and influential in our community and one of their friends had literally lost everything, family, uh, his wife left him, the kids left him, he lost his job, 
um, uh, was homeless and they called me to ask if we could get him into services. Doesn't have any funding, doesn't have any insurance, doesn't have any, you know, how can we make this work? And, and we did, we accommodated and he uh, chose not to enter services because he had a cell phone and he had a monthly payment on his cell phone so he needed to make sure he somehow earned some money to keep his cell phone. What's the common barrier for service is that this, this disease is a disease that tells us we don't have a disease and does everything it can to uh, sustain that, that comment. And that's why I like Karen's uh, model and, and many other providers follow that model of care management. Uh, Pre-contemplation can take some time. Contemplation can take some time. Um, you know, that, so that is the disease itself. The other big barrier we come across all the time is uh, managed care organizations. And, you know, treatment it can be expensive. And when you have commercial insurance, like any other illness, you should be able to use your commercial insurance for that illness and not stigmatized or asked to uh, fail first prior to move forward. And that's a, a big issue that we contend with. Yeah, we recently did a study on this, and it's, it was exactly your latter point, <laughs> the biggest barriers to treatment for people, these people who are actively using opioids to get into treatment initially, is uh, socioeconomics, like insurance coverage, um, uh, worried about money, and then also um, that a lot of folks don't know where to go, especially people in rural areas um, who might have to travel 20, 30, 40 miles to get treatment, and that's a problem. I was also going to add um, initially finances, but um, you know, in, in a lot of the work that we do, um, um, it, it's interesting how much the family can be involved in, 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 in that treatment. You know, if it's finances, and, and, and you know, Karen's a foundation, they created a foundation in Florida, so we do have an ability to help, and sometimes less, sometimes more, um, uh, with that situation. Um, and yet, one of the things that's happened recently is that a lot of families that we spent a lot of time with three years ago, four years ago, are popping back up on our screen. They may not have had resources, it might have just been their resistance, and it is for us an ask to include families to do the kind of work that we believe is beneficial to the kind of outcomes that they're wanting and that they want for their, their, their loved one, and, and, and sometimes we're seeing some, some resistance in, in that area. And, and I mentioned coming back, there's a, a recent case where there's, there was 11 treatments in between the first ask and, and the second. First thought was that it was finances, but here they are again. Um, and it's not so much finances now, it's just that they've tried a lot of other solutions and they, 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 they didn't find, and now they're ready to do the work. Uh, so much so that uh, two of the family members uh, in, in, in the first month have already been spent two weeks in treatment with us. So. Uh, there's a lot of different factors, uh, and, and just like every case that, that comes on board, um, they're all complex, and you have to look at all, all of the contributing pieces to figure out wh what's going on. Don't make me ask questions. <laughs> Go Anybody in the back? Yes, ma'am.
everyone hear that question? It's usually moderate to severe. So she's asking, is there some sort of assessment that would help us better identify who would be most appropriate for medication-assisted treatment or just general psychosocial interventions, treatment as usual? Yeah. For, I mean, the short answer is not really. <laughs> uh, I think not the, yet. Yeah, the diagnostic criteria for MAT would generally be moderate to severe opioid use disorder. So after that, then that would just, I think, be a conversation with the patient about their recovery goals, um, you know, and whether they're open to being on an MAT. Um, you know, oh, sorry. Uh, after the initial diagnosis of, of moderate to severe opioid use disorder, it, it would become a, a, a conversation about recovery goals with the patient. And if one of the medication-assisted treatments better match their recovery goals, then that's what I would encourage. At this stage of the game, given the massive amounts of opioid overdose death in this country, I would personally recommend that everybody go on some form of MAT. Um, doesn't have to be buprenorphine or methadone, but uh, there's Vivitrol. Yep. I think there's I think there's one to match everybody. Um, Saturated? <laughs> you want me to ask a question? What are the pros and cons of adopting a standardized intake assessment? Perhaps what is a standardized intake assessment? I mean, that's the, I, I think that's the whole point of uh, using criteria such as the ASAM criteria, the GAD, your, your psychological, uh, your emotional behavioral. Uh, screenings, the more standardized you can get, the more consistent you can get. And our whole session this morning talked about that ob uh, objective data that you can um, measure and, and trend off of, and then you get better outcomes from there. The cons are trying to fit it all into your, you know, your electronic medical record, right? And then listen to your counselor's complaint because there's too many clicks to make it go. Am I the only one with that experience? Is this what's going on here? You guys are all still on paper? Just wait. Yeah, I think a potential con is uh, who's deciding what's standard, you know, <laughs> um, and does, you know, is it comprehensive enough, is it too brief? Uh, that's a potential con. I think the benefit outweighs the risk there um, because we do need some kind of standardized um, level of care for these folks and so that treatment centers talk to each other um, so that, you know, if you get assessed at one treatment center, that can be useful to the next if they're, I think it helps with a warm handoff from one to the next. I don't know. I like the idea of a standardized um, um, assessment instrument um, and, and absolutely believe that it's going to be difficult to achieve, but um, it's something we should work towards. You know, part of um, uh, the assessments that, that we get involved in and even at times prior to admission or gambling, digital addiction, and sexual addiction, um, which we most certainly see in many of our patients. It's part of gathering history from other providers, um, um, psychiatrists, therapists, psychologists, uh, families that we're working with also. Um, but um, um, it, it's, it's, it's simply a goal. Uh, whether it can be inclusive to everything, I, I don't think so, but um, uh, some kind of base standardization uh, sh should be a part of. Um, and, and then 
I don't know, one of the things I was thinking about this morning during the meeting was, does that information become the base for establishing the measurable outcomes uh, or measuring data? You know, something that everybody could have and then we could start that and then the measurement points in between. It, it, it would be a good place to start. Yeah, no doubt I agree. I just want to make one sort of, just want to parse out one little detail about the word standardized. I think some of my experience has been that there's a difference between sort of internally standardized assessments, proto assessment protocols within an organization and sort of what would be more peer-reviewed standardization, which generally more synonymous with a measure that's been validated to be invariant across groups. In other words, if you use this instrument, are you going to get similar sort of outcomes, so to speak? Are you going to get to a similar destination if you're using it across this organization, that organization, and that organization? And I think the difficulty which organizations like ASAM are beginning to tackle is that there's the, the challenge is that it's very difficult to do. Um, and there's a lot of data science that goes into that, and it takes time. Um, and we don't want to overburden. I mean, there are intake uh, assessment department at Cumberland Heights. They're busy people. I've implemented a lot of measurement stuff at Cumberland Heights over the last eight months, which you can talk to me about at another time, which is really fantastic. I'm super excited to talk about it. But um, I go over there and just, are you guys okay? Can I buy you lunch? Is there anything I can do, right? Because they are, they are literally on boots on the ground taking calls 24-7. So it's a really important area of all of our practices. Um, and just in interesting detail. Anybody want to comment about that, standardized intake assessments? Dialogue. It's okay to share. That's a great point. Did everybody hear that? It can be a struggle when you use a standard and externally. Thank you, sir, for your feedback. I do appreciate that. It can be difficult when you have an externally standardized assessment because it might block rapport building, right? Maybe you don't have a lot of experience using that assessment and so you're reading the questions and it can become a little blocky and, okay, how many days have you, right, on a scale of one to ten, one be, that's very, that's very true and so, yeah, and y'all want to make comments about that? Well, you're trying, I mean, I was joking about the computer, but I wasn't joking about the computer. It's, you're trying to engage someone in the worst moment of their life, perhaps, and you're like, I can't ask, don't, don't tell me about your last use because I need to ask your demographics first and right. I have to, to go in order and it really can be prohibitive uh, in that regard so I, I agree with you. It is workable. I, I agree with you. I, one of the things I, I'm forever saying, style point's important. How could I go through that? I have a 14-page assessment and questions, questionnaires that I ask. Um, it may not come out in any sense of order. It may not all, given the time that I have with the patient and or family, come out in that in initial uh, communication. Um, most of my staff will spend at least an hour. I've spent an hour and a half on an initial assessment. Um, but again, I'm a good listener. Families in that crisis you were talking about want and oftentimes um, build a little bit of rapport and, and you can direct that conversation pretty comfortably. 
It's, I mean, you get these young 29-year-old do-gooders who, uh, <laughs> who maybe don't have the experience, probably a little bit younger, who don't have that experience. So you have to follow that standardized test as you have been through and, and you learn the, the tricks and you learn what to go back and you're, you're comfortable with there. But again, that's the good and the bad. The good is you're making sure you get all the information you need. The bad is you lose some of that rapport until you get that experience. So. Thank you, ma'am, for that comment. Yes, sir, would you please stand? Great question. Anybody have experience with ASAM's Continuum, which is a software-based, web-based or software-based? I can't remember. Web, excuse me, web-based application for standardized assessment. No one has experience just by a show of hands, just, okay. Good question. Now we have the answer. Well, we're happy to let everyone go early. Feel free, if that's okay with the panelists. Absolutely. Feel free to stay behind and uh, ask us questions if need be or get our contact information. Thank you. Thank you.